Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule, no sound bites. Welcome to another episode of Ars Technica Live. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. I am Saroos Farwar. I'm the senior business editor at Ars Technica. And this is our guest, Lisa Ling, and she is going to talk to us today about um, her almost two decades of experience um, working in the Air National Guard, uh, where she did a number of jobs, but one of them was working with drones. Um, And she's testified about her experiences in front of the EU and has spoken out in the media uh, and has become quite a well-known whistleblower for her work. And uh, we're just incredibly lucky that she's here to talk with us today. So thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I wanted to start out, so Lisa, for those of you guys who haven't seen this film, I just watched it over the weekend. It's this really amazing film called National Bird. And I'd followed Lisa's uh, kind of commentary on Twitter a little bit. But when I sat down to watch this film, it was, I think, really eye-opening for your kind of commentary in the film, as well as two other military drone whistleblowers. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be connected with this film and why you chose out to kind of speak out, you know, about drones in the way that you have? I was at a veterans gathering and, uh, and Sonia Kennebec, the director, came and, and was there for, I don't know, about two minutes. We had a conversation and then she had to go. I didn't know at the time why she had to go, but it was um, it had something to do with one of the other characters in the film. And if you see the film, you'll kind of um, get where she went. And then I never expected to hear from her again. Um, and then I came back home to the Bay Area and uh, got a phone call. And for a couple of days, uh, we talked about uh, what was you know what the film was about, what her you know vision of the film was. And she came to me with a binder full of information about drone technology that I didn't think any other civilian had. I mean, she had done her homework. Um, she's an awesome uh, journalist, you know. And uh, so I knew I was going to speak out because the drone program is wrong. I mean, you simply, drones are terror. If you have a drone with a weapon flying over your head and you're on the ground and you don't know whether you turn around and your grandmother's going to be dead or, you know, one of your close family or friends or, any or you, um, or you're going to lose limbs, and, and, you, and you're in that state wherever you are. Like if we had a drone over our head right now, we'd all be terrified because no one's immune. You can't say that, you know, I'm an infant, I'm not going to get droned because infants have gotten droned. And you can't say I'm a teacher or what you can't say. I mean, there's nobody in um, the cultures where we are really that has been immune to being droned. So, um, and I just... You know, we can't fight a war on terror with terror. So I'm wondering how you got involved with the drone program. I know you can't talk explicitly about everything, but um, in the course of your work, how did you get uh, pulled into that? I know you were doing technical work. What was your kind of career path into working on the drone program? So I started out in the military. I wanted to be a nurse. And so I, I did. I became a nurse. And um, there uh, were folks that needed help with computers, and I was able to help them. And one day I went, and I was wearing a green Army uniform, and the next day I came back to work, and I was wearing an Air Force uniform. And it was great, because everybody in the military knows that the Army 
has a third layer of encryption and it's called the M16. And the Air Force actually has encryption. And so if you're gonna be in communications and you wanna learn about the technology, then the Air Force was the branch service that you'd wanna to go to. And I thought, this is great. I had no idea, you know, um, and I started out helping people with their technical things, mostly helping people to communicate, like the Army to communicate with the Air Force and, you know, things like that. Then our unit changed and it became a drone unit. And, um, and I moved with the unit into the drone program onto an active duty base. And that's how I got involved. And nobody really knows what goes on once you get, you know, it's top secret and it's not like it's talked about before you get into it. So you really kind of didn't know, you know, the, the, the ramifications of what you were getting into. And um, then once you're there, you're there. How did that change kind of manifest itself from doing sort of what would seem to be kind of uh, perfunctory communications work from one unit of the military to another to actually working on these drone systems? So basically everybody looks at the drone and what that is is a nice piece of fiberglass that flies around with bombs. But there's an entire system. You can find it online actually. It's called the uh, Air Force DCGS, Distributed Common Ground System. And what that is is the technology behind the drone. And basically if you, you know, unplug the drone from that, then what you have is a, a, a paperweight with a wingspan of about 66 feet. But I mean, like, in terms of the work that you were doing, how did you, like, you know, you, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about kind of this shift from, from kind of regular communications work or more traditional communications work to shifting to the drone program. Was that something that happened all at once? Was it more gradual? How did you, how did you know that it was happening? So basically, it was kind of gradual. You know, at first, I ended up with all the equipment and I got sent somewhere and, um, and it was like, you know, for me, if you put a bunch of geeky equipment in front of me, I'm like a kid in a candy store. This stuff is really cool. What, I can take it apart. It costs millions of dollars. You're letting me do this. And it's, and it's like, wow, this is cool. What happened was um, that the equipment wasn't connected. So I kind of knew what it did. Communications equipment, really what you're looking at is you're looking at tables and trees and ones and zeros. There's nothing much, there's not a whole lot more to it than that. And so whatever it is, whether your television's talking to your toaster or your radio's talking to, you know, whatever, it's communications is all the same thing. And when you have equipment that requires communications, then the technology is pretty much the same. And so slowly I ended up going on the active equipment, the equipment that was actually working. And what I saw was um, fairly dysfunctional. What I saw was a bunch of, you know, traumatized young people. And I started looking around and wondering, you know, like, what is all this? And, and really, it's a distributed system. So it's not like I press a key on a keyboard and all of a sudden there's an infant in Yemen that dies. There's a whole lot of people that are, that are, you know, that are a part of the system. And that's, you know, by design. It's like the Milgram experiment on steroids. That's very intense, the Milgram experiment. Um, can you talk more about what you mean by how it's distributed? Um, you were saying that there's a lot of people involved, so it's not just like you push a button. What does that mean? Is there, are there 10 people working on one drone? Or like, how does, how does that team work? So I would love to tell you, <laughs> but I like I my freedom. And so I can't give you numbers, but some of the things, you know, there's a lot of things like, uh, 
like uh, Christian Stork and, and Protap Chatterjee just wrote a report and it's gonna come out really soon on some of the technology and, and some of the technology that you can find, you know, if you look up Air Force DCGS and all of that, you know, the lenses and the, and the, the equipment is the same. Um, it's not very much different than what, you know, all of us geeks are familiar with. So um, I wish that, you know, I really want to be able to tell you all everything. And I think that because this is a system that's being used in our name all over the globe, I think that there should be more transparency. In fact, General McChrystal says in the film National Bird that he thinks that this should be explained to people better. And so far that really hasn't happened, so. So do you want people to understand um, the technology better or the kind of operations around the technology, like how people are using it or both? All of it. You look at the comments on things when I'm doing a talk like this and one of the questions was, you know, um, was, or somebody was trying to explain that this is no different than any other aircraft that drops ordnance on a country. And it's radically different from the ground. It is just radically different. I mean, think about it right now. If we had a drone over our head, we would all be terrified if we didn't know where they were going to drop the ordinance. And people don't look at that in that way. A plane, it comes, it drops the ordinance, and it leaves. And even for that brief moment, you can go, ah, there's respite. But we're talking about countries that are constantly under terror. And it lends me to ask the question, like, who is really the terrorist here? Is your concern more that it's because drones have the ability to be autonomous, can fly for longer, can be more persistent in the way that a human pilot, I would think, cannot be? Is that, is that more of your concern when you talk about terror and being terrifying to people? Well, because there are weapons on drones, um, when they were just doing surveillance and they were doing overwatch and they were watching our, our troops out there, you know, and... Uh, watching out if somebody's planning an IED or something like that. And they didn't have ordinance on them. So even back at that time, there were people that, you know, kind of felt protected. I'm not a fan of massive surveillance, but there's a huge difference between something watching you and something watching you that you realize from a people that don't understand the culture that you're in and something is going to fall from the sky and kill someone you love. There's just a huge difference. And, and, you know, everybody says that drones are accurate. They are. If you point a laser at a target and you have a weapon that aims for the laser, it's going to hit the laser. That is called accuracy. But that's not what we should be paying attention to. We should be paying attention to what are the legal means and, and in the rules of war, like what defines a terrorist? because you've got people in repatriated communities in places like Afghanistan, and they wear cultural clothing that's really similar. It's not like the guy that carries the rifle in that community, who everybody knows is the police person or the peace officer or whatever you want to call them, right? Because he's carrying a weapon, does that now make him an enemy combatant? Well, the cases have been shown. Reprieve has done um, a lot of studies that you can find on the internet where people have been killed more than once. So um, just what defines who is a target and who's not a target? And do you think that, that's, that that problem with targeting is part of this other issue that you were describing around surveillance? Because I do think, I mean, I've heard the same question that you said that you'd heard about people saying, well, what's, what's the big difference between a bomber plane and, and a 
drone, but it sounds like what you're saying is that the difference is, is that they're constantly watching and there is it that they're is that constant watching giving people a false sense of security about who they're targeting? Like, oh, well, I've watched them for 15 hours, so I, I know for sure that's the bad guy. Or Well, I think that that is actually giving Americans a false sense of security. I think that, that as Americans that we believe, you know, that a lot of times that we're doing the right thing. And as it turns out, we're not. Um, we'd like to think that what we do overseas in our name is, you know, a good idea. But we're actually in countries that we're not at war with, like Yemen or, you know, other countries that we're not. So um, basically, uh, when they were doing only surveillance, they were not armed. So imagine somebody walking through this room with a rifle that's cocked and just walking around like that. I mean, that's the kind of terror that the people on the ground experience day in and day out. It doesn't go away. And you think that if um, the U.S. were using more conventional methods to bomb, that that would actually be less terrifying? Or um, I think that in many ways that's true, but I'm not an advocate of just going around and bombing countries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> at least they leave, right? Like, at least they fly off. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, we have to look at things that we're not willing to look at, like the equivalency of force. Really? What is an imminent threat when somebody only has a rifle? They don't have, like, um, you know, uh, weapons that can go from Afghanistan, intercontinental ballistic missiles or anything like that. So what defines an imminent threat? And from this side of the globe, what are we actually protecting? Like, we need to ask the questions. If they don't have an intercontinental ballistic missile that can hit us, if they don't have any means of attacking us, what is it that we're protecting? And I think a lot of what we'll find are there's corporate interests that are involved in this. I didn't sign up to fight for corporations. What did you sign up for? Why, why did you choose to join the National Guard? Um, I actually um, signed up because, you know, uh, I didn't know any other way Basically, it's called the poverty draft. It was a job, and I signed up as a nurse because I wanted to help people, and I assumed that as a nurse I could treat people, all of people, like whether our quote-unquote enemies or not. And, um, and I was basically, over a period of time, indoctrinated into the culture. One of the things that happens in the film National Bird that most struck me is the section of the film where you travel to Afghanistan and you meet with some of the families that are affected by these drone strikes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to make that trip and what you, what you saw when you got there. So I had been to Afghanistan before and I really believe that what we need to be, you know, the people that we don't hear from in the news are the affected countries, the people in the affected countries, ostensibly black and brown people all over the globe that were droning. And I really felt like um, that I wanted to go to Afghanistan and, and also Sonia Kennebec, the director of the film, and, and Torsten Lapp, the videographer. Uh, all of us felt that the important stories are the stories of those impacted and that that's what we should be listening for. And we're just, I mean, there were people that actually came to our Congress and Congress didn't show up. That's pretty culturally arrogant. So um, 
They're an amazing culture that's been around thousands upon thousands of years, more than our own. Before they became known as quote-unquote terrorists, they were known for their unique style of hospitality. They're just amazing people, and they actually, you know, I personally think that being a, being a part of the drone program is pretty unforgivable. And they actually forgave me, and that was not at all what I was looking for, and it was by far not what I was expecting. How did that kind of conversation take place? I mean, did you, like, in the, in the film, they depict, you know, scenes of people in a circle, right? Eight, six, eight, 10, 12 people talking together, uh, talking to the person who's off camera, being interviewed, I sort of assume. Um, what was your interactions with them like? Was it in that kind of context or was it in a different it, it was pretty much in a different context. I mean, what would it be like if you, I, you know, I, I really felt, what would it be like if somebody that was involved in the program that where you lost relatives and stuff like that were in your face? And so I, I really made it a point and we all agreed beforehand that I was going to stay in the background for all of that and that they were going to ask the families, you know, and let them know that I was there. And if they chose to talk to me, that they would be welcome to do that. And they actually did um, choose to talk to me and choose to forgive me. So that's pretty much how that took place. But, you know, um, I basically stayed a lot in the background out of respect for them. Because, I mean, how would you feel? What was the turning point for you when you were still in the military and you were working on the drone program? Like, what was the moment when you were like, okay, this is it. I have to become a whistleblower, basically. There wasn't really a moment um, like that while I was in. I was handed a piece of paper because there was really no way for me to know um, how the work I did was impacting anything. It's not like they gave us feedback. And it's, like I said, not like I pressed a key and all of a sudden there was a dead child overseas. Um, so when I left, they gave, me, they gave me a couple of awards. And one of the awards basically stated that the equipment that I worked on and the things that I did impacted 121,000 Afghan lives. That's 121 people impacted by the technology that I was a part of. And then another award that I received um, that basically said that, um, and I can't remember the word that they used, but basically it means killing, eliminating, destroying, a word like that. And it was used and it said that, um, that I participating in eliminating two IEDs and 450 um, enemy combatants. And so seeing that kind of put it in perspective for you. Yes. I wanted to get back to um, something that you said earlier about how you didn't sign up to work for corporations um, or to do work for corporations. What did, what did you mean by that? Who are the corporations that you think are benefiting from the drone program? Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, BAE right now in the UK is making a system, a drone system, a stealth system. And um, stealth systems are made for the developed world. And this system, which is advertised on the internet, is... Uh, basically capable of finding a target and, and killing, I, I hate saying finding a target, but that's how it's said, finding something and destroying it, finding whether it's a person, a building or whatever. And here's the clincher, without human intervention. Without any human intervention, this device can be sent, this device that's made for first world countries, for developed nations. And um, that's BAE systems. And then 
You know, General Electric makes toasters, televisions, and drone parts. And there's like all kinds of corporations. And what happens is here and when I went to Australia and other places, you can see small towns that have been pretty much, you know, they look like ghost towns one minute. And then over a period of time, all of a sudden you see all these military corporate contractor buildings. The roads are a bit better paved, you know, and um, that's what's happening all across this country and other countries. And what happens with that is when you've got a congressman in the area or you've got, you know, somebody that's responsible and somebody that's giving some your community thousands of jobs, walk up to them and say, hey, if you don't do my bidding within Congress or within wherever you're legislating, then we're going to take these jobs out of here. That gives corporations control they shouldn't have. What do you think that people who are concerned about drones you know, and the, the way that drones are used in modern warfare, people such as yourself, people su such as people who are in this room right now, what do you think is something meaningful that people can do to express their, uh, you know, concerns uh, about how drones are actually used right now? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is that we're all privileged. When we see war on television, we can merely change the channel. There's countries all over the globe that don't have that, that don't have that privilege. So I really hope that people start having these conversations, start reading about what drones are doing, um, start reading, you know, there's a new book that came out that just completely glorifies drones and it's called Drone Warrior. And um, Alex Edney Brown, who's a PhD student um, out of Australia and myself wrote an um, op-ed in the uh, LA Times the other day, you know, read things like that and, and look things up and um, I know that it's hard now to dig for news, you know? I mean, we don't just get to turn on the television and hear news, real news. Um, it's kind of different now, but I think that we need to start looking for these things that is being done in our name. And the other thing is um, I'm opposed to protests in front of military bases because all of us, you know, we know, you know, um, we get to a point to where we know. And I think that we need people like myself Sean Westmoreland, Brandon Bryant, Thomas Drake, you know, and others, whistleblowers to come forward and to talk about these things. So I think that standing in front of us is not the right way to do it. I think that, you know, for people that are into activism and doing protests, you know, even if one person, you know, um, my mother, <laughs> you know, actually walked into a store and talked to somebody about why they shouldn't buy that General Electric toaster, because we've all seen that divestment works. And, um, and I think that if we started to know who these manufacturers are, and actually Wikipedia, if you look up military contractors, has a whole bunch of information about what different contractors are doing. And I think a lot of it is that, you know, we here prefer to change the channel, not necessarily in this place, but uh, in a lot of places. And I know, you know, I, I, I'm great at parties. Um, I walk people and, here, let's talk about death and destruction that's being done in our name. You know, find a way to like, um, to, to basically talk about it. So where do you think that we're headed with drone warfare, both you know, in the military, but also where, where else do you see drones being deployed? So basically Australia right now, they're starting in um, Melbourne University. They've actually started an entire research laboratory there. They've built it, funded it, and they're funding students there in these things called top-ups. 
And, um, and so they're funding research. So the rate of return for technology now is astronomical, right? And so there's a lot of companies that want to get into tech. And so there are things that are being, um, that are being made. I mean, they're trying to get artificial intelligence into drones so that they can do dog fights and all of this. There's so many things that are being done with technology right now. And it's very, in some ways, very subtle. But there was recently a summit at Asilomar in California where um, all of the, you know, the great technical minds went and said, this is going to be our undoing, you know, that we can take this technology to our extinction. And I know that sounds like I'm up here as a conspiracy theorist, but I'm really not. I spent 20 years in the military, you know, um, and I did everything that, you know, I was pretty much told to do, deployed where they told me to go and did all these. I've taken a lot of time, a lot of thought and a lot of energy to really consider the things that I'm talking about and the things that I'm saying. And, um, and what is real is that technology can very well be our downfall and we need to pay attention to where it's going. I mean, an autonomous drone, you know, it's politically expedient and it will make war much easier. Basically, it's gonna take a critical mass of people to be a bulwark against the direction that we're, that we're going. I mean, the ship has sailed and it, we really need to turn it around. One of the things that we talked about earlier was how military technology is oftentimes transferred to civilian use, so like local law enforcement use. I'd be curious to hear from you about how you think that, you know, drones that you worked on or drones that you had intimate contact with, you know, we might see them over the skies of Oakland or over the skies of the Bay Area in the, in the near future. Like, how do you imagine that those kinds of technologies that maybe you worked on while you were in service could be used more locally. In the paper that's coming out uh, from Preta Chatterjee and Christian Stork, they basically discuss how the US government uh, tried to get the Border Patrol to use drones. And the Border Patrol came back and said, I can't tell who are our agents and who are people trying to get across the border. Think about that for a minute. So they didn't want to use them. Um, so I think that there's going to be a push, but we have to be aware of the difference, like consumer drones aren't attached to this whole system. But again, communications equipment, whether a camera lens is on a drone or on a building, if it's all sucked into a huge database, then the important thing about drones other than the weapons, and I truly believe the weapons need to be taken off of drones, I think that's the first step that's a reasonable ask. And it's what the Afghan people ask. Just take the weapons off of drones. But I think that the other important thing about these technologies is the surveillance equipment. And I think that it's the responsibility of our government to tell us, right? Where does my right to privacy begin? And where does it end? Um, I think about two years ago, there was an article that they had listening equipment in bus stops in San Francisco. And people didn't know about it. And they had probably private conversations like, where does this constitutional right that we have begin and end? I mean, we're headed in this direction. I mean, when I first started traveling about three years ago, um, and I came back to the US from outside the country, when I got back to the airport, they didn't have facial recognition that was mandatory to come back in. But when I went to Australia, they did. And when I went to different countries, they did. 
Now, if we travel outside of one country and into another, they have our entire facial recognition and they take that database and connect it to another database. I mean, it, it's pretty scary. Should we take audience questions now? I've seen some reports that the uh, civilian casualties in drone strikes just since Trump uh, has been elected have exploded. I mean, we're talking like as many in his first however many months as uh, president um, as the same period over four years of Obama's presidency. And I know that the DOD's official response to this is, oh, well, it's because the battles are moving into more populated areas. Um, do, you have, do you have any insight on that? Do you think that's a credible response? Or do you think that the oversight is just being ratcheted back on uh, airstrikes and drone strikes? So I think that um, basically oversight is seriously important to a system of this magnitude. But once we turn that over to secret agencies, um, oversight becomes nearly impossible and um, things can happen that we won't find out about for years. I mean, what I can say about the civilian casualties is Reprieve does an excellent job of, um, of putting out documentation and paperwork about the, the amount of civilian casualties. I can also say that I, that award that I got that talked about 121,000 people was in a two-year period, and I'm one individual. So I think that people can possibly extrapolate from that that the numbers that are in the public purview are exceedingly low. What do you see as the end game for this, or in, like the long-term goal? Do you envision something like a international treaty in the same way that people have tried to ban landmines, or do you think it's something more like a country-by-country country tweak to the policies, or, or what? So there's a couple of things. One thing I think that we need to do is take the weapons off of drones. I think that's immediate. I mean, we're talking about wars in developing nations. We're a country that can call in an airstrike. So I really think that that's the first thing that needs to happen. And then I think that global governance needs to happen. And in order for global governance to happen, Right now, the executive has this abundant amount of power. And there's like, you know, the, the three branches of government. It, it's just really hard to have oversight on this. And things are being done in the FISA courts and all of that. I think there needs to be more transparency. And just like General McChrystal said, I think that it needs to be explained to people better. And I would go one more than that. I think it needs to be explained to the American public what is being in, done in our name, what is being paid for by our tax dollars, factually. Do you think that with the right doctrine, drones could be deployed in a way that would reduce the risk of harm both to pilots and to civilians? So the other thing is drones are not just pilot in a plane and not just two people in a plane. It's a whole bunch of people. And um, I really highly suggest that you watch the film National Bird so that you can have an understanding. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. Um, so that you can have understanding of the impact on the personnel that are not sitting directly in the plane, of the intelligence analysts that watch all of these things. I mean, we're talking about young people who are 18 to 24. And do I think that military doctrine will change any of this? I think that that depends on us. I think that that depends on our population. What are we okay with? Apparently right now we're okay with drones because there's no outcry, there's no outrage. We're sitting here still looking at, at you know, Russia, and um, I think that we need to, to pay more attention and, and 
and protest loudly um, because where has military doctrine gotten us? I mean, before there were drones, military doctrine did not prevent things like uh, us working for corporations in, in historical events like what happened to the Banana Republic. So I think that history tells us that no, changing the doctrine won't work. I think that changing our priorities and voicing our priorities as Americans is a good start. You mentioned just now about voicing you know, our opinions and um, making ourselves heard if, if we have a, you know, a, dis, you know, a dissenting opinion regarding this. But I mean, you're being so strong. What sort of um, consequences has, has there been for you speaking out? And also too, you mentioned that they're developing stealth systems for first world countries. I mean, what, where do you see the first testing grounds? I mean, if you think about it, is there some sort of technology that perhaps that, you know, we could wear? I mean, they're already talking about high tech, you know, things that, you know, would be easier to detect people. Do you think that in the foreseeable future, there might be minority groups that could be targeted with these weapons? So I'm just going to be blunt. I think that minority groups are already targeted with these weapons. Um, I think that, uh, and, and like I said, I think that all the technology is alike and surveillance is surveillance, no matter where the camera's posted. And I think that, um, I think that we have an entire national history of being oppressive. Where's the testing grounds? I have no idea. The same holds true, the adage, follow the money. And I just think that even for you to come up here and, and have to feel like asking that question is a tragedy in itself. So um, uh, what could happen to me? I mean, I could go to prison. I'm trying really hard not to. And I want to say, like I always do, that I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not giving out any classified information. You know, um, for those people that know me, that's, you know, I'm walking the straight and narrow. But... Is there a chance? Yeah, absolutely. There's a war on whistleblowers, the sources for journalists, and there's a war on journalists that are happening right now. And um, I would also say that if y'all want to be helpful, my personal attorney is Jesslyn Radak at Exposed Facts. If you wanted to donate to her, I would personally appreciate it. Um, because, you know, when I'm going to have these conversations, that's who I talk to. You know, where are my boundaries and, and, and all of that. And she works with a ton of whistleblowers. And these whistleblowers are the sources for the news. And without, you know, without people coming out and telling the truth, you know. Um, right now, there's a lot of people looking at a reality winner, you know. All she wanted to do was state something that was going on so the public can see it. And, and overclassification is a thing. Um, we keep way too many secrets. And, you know, I hold true to the old adage, we're only as sick as our secrets. And I think that applies to nation states as well. What's the name of the BAE program and what technologies do you know of that are involved in it, especially as regards target identification? So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of technologies that are involved in targeting that have been made public. I mean, lots of people have talked about BAE. cell phone. I'm telling you. If you look up BAE systems and drone, you will find it. I wanted to raise two questions about the popular narrative, which is, first of all, that this is something that's happening far away, and second of all, that it's surgical and low risk, et cetera. So um, 
On the second question, can you talk a little bit about the targeting protocols? My understanding is that essentially anybody above the age of 16, proximate within about 100 yards of the intended target is de facto considered to be associated with them. Um, ergo, everybody here and everybody in the yard um, would be de facto associated with, for instance, you, although I don't know anything about you. Um, so can we start with, can we start with the tar targeting protocols and what that means in terms of innocent uh, uh, casualties? And then the second question is just a, a little bit about um, issues of uh, precedent. Because right now we like to think, all right, or, or at least I think many Americans like to think there's something happening far away, but the technology is relatively simple um, in this day and age. And so at what point will other countries feel that it's fine to use drones anywhere in the world? And while we might think that this is okay in Yemen, what's that look like if it's you know, Vladimir Putin taking out targets or targets are in France or Britain or the US or anywhere else? What does that kind of future precedent look like from your point of view? So no, I cannot personally talk about any information about any protocols because that would be sources and methods. Um, however, I'm not gonna dispute anything. So, um, and because like I said, no one is immune. No one is immune to a strike. So, yeah, everybody in the yard and everybody in the audience. And, um, you know, some of the technology that they've talked about, cell phone technology, have you ever gone for a burger and ended up in an ice cream parlor? That's okay if you're going to get a burger. It's not okay if there's a human life that is weighed out by the accuracy of that technology. And, again, drones are accurate. You point a laser-guided missile with a laser, and that guided missile is going to go to where that laser is pointing. The accuracy of the technology and the device is not what should be in question. It's the accuracy of our judgment on these other people. I mean, even in the United States, the thing that, you know, whether we're guilty or not is beyond the shadow of a doubt. What is that measurement for who we drone? And the other thing is, is that we're trying to build a wall around the country and all of this, and we don't know who to let in. And boy, it's going to take a really long time to figure out who these people are, and they could come here and kill us. Okay, so how do we know who we're droning? How do we know? You had mentioned earlier about getting recruited into the Air Force and experiencing the indoctrination of the culture behind it. My question is... I'm sure you faced intimidation from your peers or from higher ups. And that indoctrination, that culture, it's a very powerful thing. Um, it has enormous sway over how people act and how they interact and their, their behaviors and their momentum to speak out on things like this. What advice do you, would you give to someone that is thinking of speaking out or sees something and, and hesitates to say something? Because for so many people, it is so difficult to find that initial momentum to speak out because they see it as a betrayal of their own culture. What advice would you give to those people? So the first advice I would give is, I mean, the first, this is going to sound crazy, right? Read a book. Like in the culture of the military, that wasn't, you know, huge. Um, and the second thing that I would say is call an attorney. Meet with an attorney face-to-face. There are attorneys out there that help with whistleblower cases and know what your risks are. There's a lot of news media, you know, there's like The Intercept, there's, um, there's different, different news media that go out there and say, hey, you know, like publish these documents with us. If you don't know what you're doing, call an attorney. 
I highly recommend Jessalyn Radak and Expose Facts and to talk to them. But those are the people I know. There are others that are out there. Um, but don't do this alone. And then I want to say what I really want to say to anybody who's thinking of blowing the whistle is once you've done it, there's a culture that you've probably never heard of. There are people that you probably don't even know that absolutely support and envelop you. Um, and these are amazing, amazing people. And I am so fortunate to have met many of them. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for being here. That was really thank fantastic. You very much. Yeah. <laughs>